As we turn our attention from the establishment of this sacrificial system to a new section that begins in Leviticus chapter 8, I was kind of searching in my preparations for this morning for a good way to quickly recap these five offerings that we've studied over the last several weeks, as well as to illustrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of these five offerings. And as I was kind of pondering a way to creatively paint a picture, it occurred to me that Jesus already had. Like, it's an interesting thought to chew on. I'm just going to give you a nugget. You can study it on your own. But in this Old Testament Leviticus dynamic, the sacrifices, as we've studied, they had to be offered for a sinful man to come to the tabernacle and meet with God. It was a non-negotiable. They were required. And though we might be quick to say that such a dynamic no longer exists in our New Testament dynamic, our context, I'm not so sure it doesn't. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Let me read it for you. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, Jesus also took the cup after supper, this being the Passover, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, it's added in Matthew chapter 26 that Jesus also said, which is shed for the remission of sins. Jesus says this do as often as you drink it. Again, saying in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. While it's true that there is no sacrifice we're required to offer to meet with the Lord. In fact, there's no sacrifice we could ever offer. It is still a fact that the only way you and I, in our context, can meet with God, well, still through a sacrifice. Not one that we make, but one that he made, a sacrifice Jesus offered for us. A sacrifice, most interestingly, the elements that we partook of this morning of communion were designed to emphasize, to illustrate. In partaking of the bread and the cup, Paul says, very specifically, that we're proclaiming the significance of the Lord's death, his sacrifice, his offering. What that means is that communion's core purpose is to be the way in which we recognize that our salvation didn't come through our work, but his work, our faith, and his sacrifice. Which is what? The burnt offering. In addition to this, as a response to his grace, we're not required to come, demanded that we do it. We're invited. Jesus is inviting each of us in an act, a response of his grace to partake of these things in remembrance of him. Again, the grain offering. How interesting that we used unleavened bread. How these things tied together. Speaking of the elements themselves, we also have a picture in the bread of Jesus' broken body being offered to atone for our sins, sins of nature, as well as those of will. And by his blood, the cup, we see the results of our atonement illustrated. You and I have been made pure. 
by the blood. Righteous, spotless, the sin, the trespass offering. In the end, it is the very consuming of the elements themselves. Eating the bread, drinking of the cup that epitomizes not only the incredible oneness that we get to share with Jesus. He says, this is my body. But the communion, we partake together. We have communion with one another. Again, what? The peace offering. Again, the idea I find here is amazing. In the Old Testament Levitical system, five sacrifices were required to meet with God. But now in the New Testament covenant of grace, you and I get to freely meet with Jesus by partaking of the elements that represented his fulfillment of these five sacrifices, how it all ties together. Let's dive right into Leviticus chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. We're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. Things begin, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments. Now, the the, the specs for these garments, garments of the priest, the garments of the high priest, you can read about them on your own. You'll find uh, their details in Exodus chapter 28. So take Aaron, take the sons, take the garments, take the anointing oil, Moses, a bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. After articulating to Moses, and by extension, the Hebrew people, the specific protocols for the sacrificial system that was to occur at this new tabernacle of meaning located in the center of the camp of Israel as they're situated outside of Mount Sinai, Leviticus 8 transitions. We find a transition from seven chapters of legalese to now an active narrative. As a matter of fact, it's the closest to an active narrative you're going to find in the book. It's a narrative, you should note, that will last eight days. So we're going to look at a story that will last eight days. It'll carry us up through the end with the conclusion of Leviticus 10. Now keep in mind the important work being conducted at the tabernacle, the facilitating of the people's interactions with God, necessitated, because of the sinful nature of man, it necessitated the priesthood, Aaron and his sons, These men were ordained by God to represent the people before God. Not only was the tabernacle the only place that humanity, any of humanity, could come to meet with the Lord, but the involvement of a priest in this system was essential. That said, because the priests, and don't miss this, because the priests were also themselves sinners, it's an important point, one that will get hammered home, When we get to Leviticus 10, Aaron, by the way, has just weeks before, I mean, really stepped in it. Just a few weeks before this very moment where he gets ordained to be the priest, he had acted as a false priest, creating a golden calf to facilitate the worship of idolatry. Trust me, these men were sinners, and yet they're ordained, they're chosen by God, but there was a specific process for their consecration before they could begin these sanctified duties. So they're sinners, they need to be consecrated before they can begin their work. And what we're about to witness in this chapter is the establishment 
of what we know as the Aaronic priesthood. To do this, the Lord commanded Moses, here in the first few verses, to call a congregation of Israel. Here's the scene. The congregation of Israel is to be gathered before the door of the tabernacle. And from the congregation, Aaron and his sons are separated from the people. Now they're members of the tribe of Levi. And Aaron and his sons, his family, would make up the priesthood. Now imagine that scene. The entire nation, one and a half, two million, we don't know how many people, all gathered, encircling around the tabernacle. Everyone's eyes, everyone's focus, everyone's attention. And then Aaron and his sons, visibly taken from their midst, placed out in front of everyone. Again, Moses here, who's acting as God's representative he brings this, these men before the people. He commands the Lord that they be taken through a process of consecration, a process of ordination, according to a set of very particular instructions. Again, these things provided back in Exodus 29. This explains why in addition to calling out Aaron and the sons, Moses also already has with him some things. He has the garments of the priesthood. He has the anointing oil. He has a bull, two rams, a basket of unleavened bread. He's ready for the sacrifices. Verse 5, And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Again, if you're a student of such things, 16 times in Leviticus 8 and 9, you're going to find this word commanded. The Lord commanded. God commanded. Or Moses commanded. It lets us know that God was very specific and serious about how all of these things were to take place. He commands them to be done in a particular order, a particular way, a particular fashion. We continue on. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons. Again, this is before the congregation. And we're told he washed them with water. <laughs> Again, I want you to just, let's go back 3,500 years. Here we are, the encampment of Israel, the base of Sinai. This tabernacle has been built. These instructions for sacrifices have been given. We get the, the shofar blast. We all get called out. Aaron and his sons are brought forward. I mean, imagine this. Aaron and his sons, we're going to learn that Aaron had four sons. Their names were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Brings them all before the congregation. These men, it, it's implied in our text, remove their normal garments. So whatever their normal attire, they take it off. <laughs> and then Moses, again, before them all, they strip down. And Moses takes out the loofah, a bottle of dove, and he gives them a bath. That's what's happening with water. He bathes them. If you, if you find that scene to be strange, imagine how awkward it was for Aaron and the boys. And then after being washed, Moses begins to dress them, not in the garments that they had. Those were gone forever. He begins to now dress them in new garments. As we'll see, he clothes Aaron and the high priest's attire, before then clothing the four sons in the common threads of the priest. Let's see how this unfolds. Verse 7, So Moses put the tunic on Aaron. 
girded him with the sash, this was a belt, clothed him with a robe, the outer garment, and put the ephod on him. This was kind of a mantle that went over the outer garment and girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod and tied it, tied the ephod on him. And he put the breastplate on him. Again, the specs for the ephod and the breastplate, if you're interested in these things, are provided in Exodus 28. With the breastplate on him, Moses put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate. And he put the turban on Aaron's head. Also on the turban, on its front, he put the golden plates, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And again, the details here are in Exodus 29 and 30. Well, it's difficult to say with 100% certainty, and it's true that the scriptures are, are largely vague, in light of passages like Ezra six, uh, Ezra two verse sixty three, Nehemiah seven verse sixty five, First Samuel fourteen, this Urim and Thummim, which in the Hebrew can literally be translated as lights and perfections, we're not exactly sure what it is. We really don't know. We know that it's it's placed in the breastplate. It's the high priests. It would seem, at least from the evidence of Scripture, hard to say with certainty that it was two different color rocks that were used kind of like dice to decipher or determine the will of God in particular situations, like rolling dice to make an important call. Either way, once Aaron has been clothed, we read verse 10 that Moses also here, notice, he took the anointing oil. And he anoints the tabernacle, he anoints all that was in it, the furniture, the utensils, he consecrates them. Moses sprinkled some of it on the, the altar seven times. Anointed the altar, all of its utensils, the laver, its base, to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil, after doing this in the tabernacle, on Aaron's head. And anointed him, to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons, <clears throat> put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, put hats on them as the Lord commanded Moses. The, the idea here of anointing Aaron with the exact same oil that Moses has just anointed the tabernacle. Again, you got to just kind of play the scene out in your mind. Moses goes through the tabernacle and he's got this anointing oil and he's spreading the oil all over the place, seven times on the altar, on the utensils, on this, on that. And then he walks over to Aaron and like, take your hat off, put a little bit on you too. The purpose and the, the, the correlation between anointing the tabernacle stuff and then the high priest specifically was to make sure that the people knew that the high priest was solely responsible for everything that would take place in the tabernacle. In essence, what's being articulated or illustrated is that the high priest is just as much a part of the tabernacle of meeting as any of the utensils, as the altar, as anything else. Verse 14, and he brought the bull for the sin offering. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering, and Moses killed it. <laughs> the act of Aaron and his sons offering in front of all the people, the sin offering, which we've looked at. It intends here to, to articulate a profound point to everyone. Again, the priests, before they can do anything, they have to offer the sin offering, implying that the priests are sinners, making them no different than anyone else. 
They're no different than the rest of the people in that a blood sacrifice was required for their atonement, as was everyone. Yes, these men were ordained, and they were, they were given a holy calling, but they were sinners like everyone else. So before anything could take place, sin offering was to be made. Verse 15, then Moses, again in accordance to the things we've looked at about the sin offering in Leviticus 4, he took the, the blood... So, so he kills the bull, he drains the blood of the bull, he takes that blood, and he, and he puts some of it on the horns of the altar with his finger all around, purified the altar. He poured the blood at the base of the altar, consecrated it to make atonement for it. Then he took all of the fat that was on the entrails of the bull, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys with their fat. Moses burned them on the altar, but the bull its hide, its flesh, its offal, dung. Moses burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, you find this refrain, as the Lord had commanded. Well, it would be inaccurate to say that this was the first sacrifice of its kind ever made. Truth, the practice of making similar offerings to the Lord was a common practice in the Genesis record. Going all the way back to Cain and Abel, we see it with Noah, we find it often with Abraham. It is, though, worth pointing out that this is the first time the detailed procedures established in the Levitical system that we spend some weeks looking at for sacrifice at the tabernacle, this is the first time they've ever been implemented. Ever. Like, until the moment that Moses brings the bull before the congregation of Israel in front of the door of the tabernacle, takes out a blade, and cuts its throat, the sacrificial system had been theoretical. The congregation, in addition to Aaron and his sons, had never seen this happen before. Don't miss that. In truth, this is the first time Moses has seen this before or participated He's never made this type of a sacrifice. And it's clear, evident, that in all likelihood, these things were kind of shocking, appalling. They directly contrasted any similar experiences that they might have had in Egypt. I mean, be there. Get in the moment. And you're seeing Moses. He kills the bull. He begins to drain the blood out of the bull. He uses that blood to then go around and consecrate stuff purifying the altar. I mean, imagine him as he then comes back to the bull with the blade in hand, and he, and he field dresses it. He tirelessly begins cutting that bull into all of the various pieces, cutting out, removing the fat and the liver and the kidneys, taking those things, putting them on the altar, igniting a fire. You're watching. When that's happening, Moses sweating, bloody, Goes back over, still cutting up the bull, loads it up on his shoulders, takes it through the camp to the outside, finds a clean spot, puts it down, lights another fire, burns it. I mean, as you're watching this, you can't help but have a, a visceral, like real feeling like, dang, <laughs> God was serious. Like he, was, he wasn't playing around about any of this. Now, once the procedures for the sin offering are completed, 
Moses isn't done. He comes back to the tabernacle. Verse 18, and he brings the ram as the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed it, and he sprinkled the blood around the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head, the, the pieces, the fat. He washed the entrails, the legs, and water. Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. It's a slaughter. And he took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. That must have been weird. I wonder if they had talked about this in advance. He brings out Aaron's sons. They're laughing at dad. Now it's your turn. Moses put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, on the thumb of their right hands, on the big toe of their right feet. Moses sprinkled the blood all around the altar. Verse 25, and Moses took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and their fat, the right thigh, from the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, cake of bread anointed with oil, one wafer, put them on the fat, on the right thigh, put all these in Aaron's hands and in his son's hands, and weighed them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, the, these details of this particular really unique offering, the offering of consecration, uh, you'll find documented in Exodus 29 again, this is all about the consecration of the priesthood. We haven't looked at them. Uh, they're in Exodus. You can read them on your own. Verse 28, Then Moses took from their hands, burned them on the altar, on the burnt offering. They were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. That was an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses as part of the ram consecration acting as a priest here, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, on the garments of his sons with him. He consecrated Aaron, his garments, his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. Verse 30, 31, And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of the consecration offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. What remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. So whatever you don't eat. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days he shall consecrate you. The Lord here instructs that Aaron and his sons need to remain in the tabernacle. Consecration would take seven days. Verse 34. As he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you. Moses here, what's being said, is, is playing a unique role of acting as a priest for the priests. We'll unpack that more in a moment. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you may not die. You think God's serious? You want to live? Stay in that tent. For so I have commanded. Again, God's pretty serious. So Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. As with so many things that we'll encounter in this particular book, 
the key to really understanding what's going on here is to always start at a premise. And that is to see Leviticus as God establishing an order through which he would ultimately work out his greater plan for humanity. It's always a key to understanding what's happening. In fact, this particular story of God establishing the the Aaronic priesthood is a great example of this. Now, the initial question that you have to ask in the context of this amazing event, here's the question. What was God's purpose for the priesthood? Like, what's the point of all of this? And if you answer that question by saying it was all about sinful man having a mediator between himself and God, you'd be wrong. Again, the key to unpacking what's happening in Leviticus is to first consider where the concept being established ultimately lands. If it's establishing a work that God's going to accomplish, do we know what that work looks like? And if it does, then it gives us a lot of insight into what's originally happening here. For example, by the time you get to the New Testament, the Levitical priesthood was a condemnable joke. It was. Like the priests? This couldn't have been what God intended because they were acting in deplorable ways. They weren't representing the people or facilitating the worship of God. They were abusing folks, profiteering off the sacrificial system. In fact, Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, was infamously corrupt. He was the antithesis of everything a priest was called to be. Additionally, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the the accounts of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us something amazing happened. When Jesus says it is finished, the veil in the temple that separated humanity from the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, it was torn from top to bottom, removing that sin barrier, eliminating, most interestingly, the need for the priesthood altogether. Like again, so so it can't be the Jewish version of the priesthood that what we find in Leviticus 8 was was supposed to land at, because when Jesus dies, there's no need for it anymore. Beyond that, you should should be pointed out that that after the resurrection of Jesus, this was an idea understood. A, A radical shift took place culturally. Once Jesus rose from the dead, people understood what he was doing on the cross as the Lamb of God dying to satisfy God's wrath, pay the debt of sin. Devout Hebrew men and women who had spent their entire lives believing the sacrificial system was essential, I had to go to a priest, I would be damned to hell if I didn't, they all abandoned it. It's like, we don't have no need for that anymore. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish men and women abandoned it altogether. In fact, a little less than four decades after those things, the Romans would sack Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground, Since 70 AD, not only has there been no altar by which the Jews could even make an atoning sacrifice, but the Levitical order in 70 AD ceased operating. It's not operated since. The reality is today, in fact, no Jew could ever claim to be a priest of the order of Aaron 
Because all genealogical records were also lost in 70 AD, 70 AD, meaning no one could ever show lineage even to Levi. So how could you ever claim to be a priest? The priesthood died. So what's the point of all this? Now, there are those who will contend that the Aaronic priesthood was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That's the point. That Jesus became our high priest. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to explain Jesus' role. And it's true that Christ is presently functioning as our mediator in heaven. It's a glorious truth. The reality, though, and don't miss this, Jesus could not be the fulfillment of the Levitical order being described here and initiated in Leviticus 8 for one big reason. <laughs> Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah and not Levi. He's not a Levite. In fact, that point is even made in Hebrews 7 verse 14 when we're told, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. But like with these things in mind, that the priestly order of the Hebrew people ended in 70 AD, so it can't be about that, and that Jesus didn't descend from the tribe of Levi, which means it can't be about that either. What's happening in Leviticus 8? Again, the key to understanding what God is accomplishing in this chapter is to see that the fulfillment of the priesthood, the whole point of what's taking place, it's not the Hebrew people. It's not even Jesus. The key to seeing it is that it's you and I as priests. It's what you and I have become in Christ Jesus. It's what it's all about. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle describes who we are as followers of Jesus by making a direct correlation back to Le Leviticus 8. Peter says that you and I, as believers, followers of Jesus, he literally uses Leviticus language. He says we are members of a holy and royal priesthood. Interesting. What's amazing is that what we just read about in Leviticus 8 has more application to you and me than anything else. Since we embody what God was instituting in this chapter. But, let's be real. Like We're not priests in the sense that, that we mediate on behalf of sinners before the throne of God. Now, we can intercede in prayer, but we're not mediating like the priest would. Like That's not our role as priests. Nor is it our role to facilitate a mechanism by which sacrifices are offered for atonement. Also not our job. Not your job. That's Jesus' job. So what that tells us is that God's purpose in establishing the priesthood, well, let's just say it's much broader than you might initially assume. Now, to help unpack these things, it's important I remind you about the larger work that God is seeking to accomplish and Leviticus in general. Let's get the 10,000-foot the perspective. What's just happened? In the moment, literally, in the story, God's just miraculously delivered the Hebrew people from slavery. 
Moses wasn't their deliverer. The Lord was their deliverer. Moses was just a blunt tool. He was a tool in so many ways. God delivered the people. And from their bondage, he removes them from, from Egypt. Matter of fact, he removes them from everyone. He takes them into the wilderness, into the middle of nowhere, separating them entirely. And then he begins to call them as a holy people unto himself. Then he begins to uniquely order things. Second half of Exodus, we read this, we get it more specifically in Leviticus. He starts to order the way this new nation, his people, was going to operate. And he does this specifically for a purpose. Don't miss it. He wants, in using the children of Israel, ordering them as his people to operate in a different way, he wants to illustrate to the rest of the world that there's a better way to live especially in the context of Egypt. Like Israel, don't forget, was called to be distinct from the world in order, <laughs> they weren't to be distinct to be weirdos. I think sometimes Christians get that, like if I'm not the weirdest person around, I'm not really being different. Like, like they weren't separated, called to be distinct, to be weird. They were separated to be witnesses. Don't miss that. Israel was to be the body that God would inhabit. It's why he comes from Sinai, places his tent in the middle of the camp. He embodies the camp. Israel's calling was then holy. God's purpose, intentional. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, this is what the Lord says. It's kind of the vision for it all. See if you can pick up on the clue. Now therefore, and he's speaking to Moses to communicate this to the people. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all of the earth is mine, and you, speaking of the Hebrews, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Ultimately, to help the people conceptualize who they were all called to be in the world as a kingdom of priests, God does something brilliant. You're all supposed to be priests, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather you all, and then I'm going to call out Aaron and his sons from you to become a priesthood. Why? so that these men would model for you the life I want all of you to live. That's what's happening. It's why it's so public in nature. You're all called to be priests. I know that's complicated. So I'm going to call out a family of priests. They're going to show you how to do it. Like To this point, you should notice more and more and more of the sevenfold pattern we see even within the priesthood. I won't bore you with it, but if you break down the passage, you'll actually see seven steps that Moses uses in the ordination process. Aside from that, Aaron and his sons were to remain in the tabernacle for seven days to complete their consecration. No doubt, sevens, when you find them, take you back to creation. Seven days God created. Genesis 1, 
And establishing the priesthood, God is illustrating the entire recreation process he's engaged in. And keep in mind, there was nothing inherently unique or special about Aaron or his sons. Nothing. They were sinners like everyone else. Not the brightest, not the best. Like Moses, when he's commissioned by God in Exodus 3, Moses is like, you want me to go represent you? But I can't talk. I stutter. And so God's like, well, I anticipated that. Here's Aaron, your brother. He's coming. He'll be your, your spokesman. Oh, thanks, God. You know how often you find Aaron being the spokesman? Zero times. Like, he's never used as the spokes. Oh, you need your brother? Okay, cool. Like, he Aaron's the ultimate tag-along. And he finally has the, hey, I'm going to go up on the mountain and get some important commands from God, manage the camp. Aaron's like, let's do this. Golden calf. Like, there's nothing unique about these people. They're knuckleheads. And yet... And God's abundant grace, again, the precedent for grace. Bring the congregation. See those guys? Yeah, I know. Bring them up. People are like, I can't believe it. Those guys can be priests. Yeah, that's kind of the point. God chooses them. God makes them priests. God brings them into his presence. He then ordains their entire lives around himself to illustrate to everyone, well, there's a new way to be human. I don't know if we all have games we like to play. I love the card game Spades. It's my favorite game. And yet, if, you, if you've never played Spades, you'll find that it's not the easiest game to learn if you don't know how to play. It can be difficult to pick up. That being said, anyone who's ever played spades will tell you that the easiest way to learn the game is not by reading an instruction manual. That's not the e Most games are that way, right? What's the best way to learn how to play? Well, sit next to someone that already knows, watch them for a few hands, and you'll pick it up. Like That's how we learn things. You see what God's doing? The brilliance of it all? Like in order to teach Israel how to play the game, how to be a priest, how to live this life of, of, of communion with the Creator, He establishes a priesthood they could watch to learn. Well, that's how you do it. This is what the life is supposed to look like. <laughs> how very far Israel got from the intention, right? This is why chapter 8 opens with all of the people being called to the door of the tabernacle, with Aaron and his sons being called out and separated, they were set aside from the rest of the people to fill a specific role, a particular function. And this is why there's such a performance quality to everything that happens in the chapter. Like the distinctions were to be visual. Aaron and his sons are separated. They remove their normal garments. They're washed by Moses with water. They're adorned with new clothes designed to be different clothes than anyone else would wear. Well, how do I pick out the priest from the group? Well, look at the guy with the different clothes. It's pretty simple. He's clean, and he's wearing different digs. 
Aaron and his sons are then anointed by Moses with oil. They're purified by blood. This is all visual. They're all watching it. They're consecrated for a unique calling. In the end, the people would come to the priests to encounter God. Why? Well, the priests were the ones having a daily encounter with him. That's why you come to a priest. The word that's repeated in the chapter is this word consecrated. It's an interesting word, consecrated. The word in Hebrew, it literally means to set a gem into a proper place. It's a cool term to consecrate, to put into place. You see, God called Aaron and his sons out of their midst to set them into a position, a place for this divine purpose. And imagine the moment, Moses, he takes the blood and he comes up to Aaron takes some of it and he, and he puts it on his right ear and on the thumb of his right hand, on his feet, his toe. He repeats that process with the boys. Again, all performance. The image is designed to be powerful, palpable. As the priests, again, consecrated to teach how all the priests were to operate, their lives were to be ordered for God's purposes head to toe. All of it. They, were, had a, they were, have, were to have an ear to hear the voice of God. They were to have hands to do the work of God. They were to have feet to walk in God's will. Isn't that the calling of every believer? Every priest? One scholar remarks concerning this picture, writing, quote, The priests were called to reflect the divine well. And all they hear, do, and go. The priests were to be the divine on display. How interesting that these things concerning the priesthood, Leviticus 8, ultimately illustrate who you and I are in Christ Jesus, as well as who we've been called to be in this lost world around us. First, God has called you and I out of this world like the Hebrews and he set us aside, consecrated us for a purpose to do what? Well, he washed us clean of our sin, didn't he? That setting apart the consecration began with a washing. After we removed our filthy common rags, after the washing, God then adorned us with righteous garments, holiness. Beyond that, you and I, we've been anointed, right? For the task, anointed with oil, the Holy Spirit consecrating us to Himself. I hope you know, as a priest, ordained, consecrated, washed, clothed, anointed, you are not normal. You're different by design, distinct. That oil, it smelled, there was an aroma, a fragrance. I hope you know your life as a priest is centered on the divine. You've been purified by the blood. And it's as a direct result of who God has made us, well, that we become priests. We're priests in the world because of a work God did for us. And now we're priests not by sermons that we teach or words that we say. That was not the role of a priest. We represent the divine well 
in the lives that we live in the world around us. As priests, our job is to testify that God has established a new and a better way to live. Our lives should communicate to the world there is a better way to be human. Let me apply this in a very simple way. If you're a married man, the Bible presents you as being the priest of the household. Now, I realize that that concept is controversial, but it's controversial only because of the misconceptions we have of the priests. Think of it like this. Well, it's true there's a component of your role as the high priest of your home where you intercede on behalf of your wife and kids in prayer. I hope you do that. And there is no question, as the high priest of your home, the priest of your home, you have a responsibility to make sacrifices for every, when it's necessary. Truth. Sure, as the priest, God will hold you account for everything that happens under your tent. No doubt. And yet, understand your role as priest, what the Bible's getting at by calling you the priest of your home, more than anything else, your job as priest is to lead your wife and your children by example. As the priest of your home, your primary job is to reflect the divine well. Like it can't be understated how one of the main challenges of being a priest, and I'm sure you understand it, is that a priest naturally lives in a a tension, standing between two different worlds. This is why, in the calling to be a priest, God knew how critical it would be to order and center everything about your life around Him. You'd need to do it to stay grounded. For the priest, no part of his life was to be trivial. It was all consecrated, from the head to the feet. But you know, God also knew for us to be priests that we would also need an example. You know, someone to look at to learn to play the game. Which leads to another important element of the story that Leviticus 8 illustrates for us. Don't miss it. It's impossible to become a priest without first having a priest. There's no doubt Moses plays a very interesting and unique role in the process of consecrating the priesthood. And yet, the the involvement of Moses in our passage highlights a core fundamental problem also presented in the story. Like, Like the challenge you had. Now think about it like this. Like how do you initiate a priesthood of sinners without first making the sin offering? you got to make the sin offering if you're going to have a priesthood of sinners. Makes sense. But hmm, how do you offer a sin offering without someone acting as a priest? You see, it's like circular. I need a priest ultimately that isn't a sinner. But you look around the camp of Israel and you've got problems. Like the conundrum is how do you start the process when everyone's a sinner? You need a sinless priest to make the first sacrifice for a priesthood of sinful priests. Like in this situation, God makes a concession by allowing Moses to make the initial offering. And don't miss it, Moses was not a sinless man. Now he could make the offering because he too was a Levite. 
And then he would transition it to Aaron and his sons in chapter 9. We'll see that next week. But the problem is that Moses was still sinful. He'd killed an Egyptian some 40 years earlier. And therefore, the Levitical priesthood begins, yes, with a fundamental flaw. You know, it's a good thing that it didn't really matter (laughs) in the overall scheme of things. Like operating under the premise that Leviticus never intended to work, but to establish the way in which God would work. Like Moses presents for us a really powerful type. Again, the idea for you to be a priest, you need a priest. Ideally, you need a sinless one. Moses was kind of a poor substitute, but he presents a type of whom? How are you a priest? (laughs) Well, you have a priest whose name is Jesus. Like Moses is this picture of Jesus, the one priest who offered an effective sacrifice so that we might all be priests. I'm running out of time, but let me just give you two quick biblical justifications for the priesthood of Jesus. First, Jesus is more than able to be our high priest because unlike Moses, guess what? He was sinless and thus didn't have to offer a sin sacrifice to start. He was good, could offer one sacrifice for all. Two, Yes, Jesus did not descend from the tribe of Levi. Jesus couldn't be part of the Aaronic order. But according to Hebrews 6, Jesus' priestly heritage, his lineage, actually came through an earlier precedent than Aaron. What's called the order of Melchizedek. I don't have time to get into it. I'll just read you, though, in Genesis 14. Abraham's returning from a successful campaign to liberate the citizens of Sodom. We're told that Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace, brought out (laughs) bread and wine. You think that has symbolism? He was the priest of the God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham, God of uh, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham then gives Melchizedek a tenth of all of the spoils and always the lesser uh, blessed the greater. We find Jesus descending from the order of Melchizedek. I know it's a flyby. You can study it more on your own. Now the point is that while it's true that you and I cannot be priests without a priest, with an understanding of the purpose of the priesthood, well, Jesus is more than able, isn't he? Because it's Jesus who does what? He chooses us, he calls us, he washes us, he clothes us, he anoints us, he consecrates us, he purifies us through his blood, and then he shows us how to be a priest. Let me close this way. From my estimation, one of the most powerful aspects of the story itself is how the story began. Leviticus chapter 8, look back at verse 1. We read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him. You see, it was God and not Moses who chose Aaron and his sons to be priests. God chose the calf maker to be the first high priest. Again, I mentioned it before, it's a display of grace. But I bring it up to close with this, my friend. Like Aaron, there's nothing that you can do to earn such a position. Righteous garments can never be earned. 
And yet, what an amazing thing that God has called you and I to be a holy, to be a royal priesthood in this world, that he's called failures to model a better way. Only God would decide to do it that way. And then how glorious he equips us with what we need for the task, giving us Jesus to show us how to play the game. But I want you to know your life as a priest matters. It matters. You've been consecrated. You are a gem God pulled out and set into place. Your job, Christian, is to model for the world around you the life God desires for them and Jesus died to provide. That's your job. That's your role. Not by the words that you say, the sermons that you give, but the life that you live. The question is, what life are you modeling? To be an effective priest, our text is clear how essential it is that you center everything, your entire life, around the Lord. When trying to balance the tension that comes standing between two worlds, I encourage you to follow Jesus' example. Every priest needs a priest. And thankfully, we have the great high priest to look upon. And never forget, when it's all said and done, most people, here's the law that we find illustrated. You know, most people will search out a priest when they desire an encounter with God. You notice that in our, our society, our culture? Like this overarching, regardless of religion, I need to encounter God, I've got a crisis, I'm going to seek out a priest. I need a priest. I need someone. That happens for one fundamental reason. Something established here. People seek out a priest to encounter God because a priest's life should demonstrate that they know God. I need to talk to God, so I'm going to seek out someone I know is talking to him. That's the idea. Again, may I ask, with that in mind, what life are you modeling to the world around you? Do people see you as a priest? Man, I need an encounter with God. I'm going to go to that guy because his life illustrates he has one. I see it. My friend, may the priests and all that they hear, do, and go. May you and I, my friends, may we reflect the divine well. May our lives put the divine on display that the world might see there is a better way to live, a new way to be human. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.